Today we're going to be in 1 Samuel 26 and 27. The last time we looked at, in chapter 25, the account of Nabal and Abigail, one of my favorite accounts in Scripture. And tonight we're going to look at David sparing King Saul's life again, having the upper hand on him, and God sparing David after that, but David flees in fear and the lifestyle choices he makes based on that fear. We're going to talk a little bit about fear tonight and and how we uh, don't necessarily do what we should be doing and how it drives us to do things that even in many senses are irrational. So we're going to start with chapter 26 with verse 1. Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hashalah? which is opposite Jeshimon. Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hashalah, which is opposite Jeshimon by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. So King Saul is uh, maddened by his bloodthirsty behavior, his jealousy against David. He doesn't want his kingdom to end. He promised David that he would stop pursuing him, but of course he breaks his promise. He refuses to give up the kingdom, even though it's clear to him through the prophet and through many other indicators that God says, enough, I'm, I'm removing it from you. Uh, he becomes maddened by power. And it really goes to show you that when we're out of God's will, what it does to us. In this case, he becomes mad. He becomes paranoid. He becomes jealous. Uh, The pursuits don't make sense anymore. And maybe for us, uh, when we're out of God's will, our pursuits won't make sense anymore. Maybe we fight to stay relevant. We fight for the glory days and the good old days. Uh, But, you know, it's just a, a... And others can see... The, the desperation, you know, King Saul's a desperate man. Uh, over time, David, his rank swelled because the, many left King Saul because they saw what a, what a bizarre leader he was. Sadly, this is the third time his own countrymen, the Israelites, betrayed him. And it's the second time for the Ziphites. Why is that significant? Because Ziph was in the tribe of Judah and so was David. So it hurts a little bit more when it's close to home. There should have been a loyalty there with the Ziphites, and this is the second time they told Saul about where David was. And what's, what was the sense in all this? To curry favor with the king. When we look at Judas, we can see he betrayed the Lord of glory for 30 lousy pieces of silver, only to throw them back at the feet of the religious leaders later. And then today, we can still see this type of behavior. For what good reason? My pastor, I was really blessed. I, I may bring in a few, uh, Pastor Mike and Pastor Paul and Pastor Vinny and I and John we, and Vinny, we went down to the uh, pastor's conference, spent the whole day there Tuesday. It was really refreshing for us to be poured into and to be filled. So I may reference that. But my pastor has said that every solid ministry will always have a Judas or a Hithophel, and we'll get to him, or even a Saul. It's going to test leadership to see what the leadership is made of. And although this type of person, the Ahithophel or the Doeg or the Judas, they never really get anywhere in life. Even today, you can see them come and go. And what do they amount to? Nothing. It's a cheap 
temporary worldly gain. Verse 5. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Now Saul lay with the camp, with the people encamped all around him. And you can almost picture King Saul kind of in the center, you know, the bullseye, with all his men in concentric circles uh, going around him because he's paranoid. He needs to be insolent, insulated. But as we'll see, it didn't matter because uh, David and Abishai walk right in there, right past all the defenses. So all the paranoia and the insulation, it, it drives a person more mad when they find out that they've been had or somebody got in. So verse 6, Then David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, brother of Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night. And there Saul lay sleeping within the camp, with his spear stuck in the ground by his head, and Abner and the people lay all around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. You got to kind of love men and women that uh, (laughs) are really enthusiastic about serving with a leader who were willing to accompany you, especially with Abishai's enthusiasm. Now, I'm going to make a case, okay, that David at this point was really God's anointed. Saul still held the position, but David was really the anointed, and we'll, we'll get into that. Um, I, I love this story about Jonathan and this unnamed armor bearer. He says, let's go up the hill and let's fight the Philistines, only two guys. You see, we're social creatures, And sometimes as leaders, well, a lot of times we like to have somebody else with us, right? Most of the world is married or has some type of relationship because God has not made us solitary creatures. So the the one story about Jonathan and this armor bearer, what if he said to Jonathan, what are you, crazy? There's at least 20 guys up there. I'm not going with you. What would have happened? I don't know. I just know that he went with them. Every ministry, every leader benefits from the courage and the loyalty of those that are willing to step up to the plate and assist. So David and Abishai are right there. They're in that inner circle while all the men are sleeping in the enemy camp. They have the death blow advantage. Abishai's trying to talk David into killing King Saul, and he sweetens the pot a little bit. He's like, listen, number one, I'm not going to miss. And when I strike him through with the spear, trust me, it's going to go right to the other side and hit the ground. I won't have to do it again. It's going to be clean, and we'll get in there, we'll do it, we'll get out of there. So he's trying to make his case, and David's like, listen, you know, back off a little bit, Abishai. It's not what I want to do here. Verse 9. And David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please, take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. He was really trusting him at this point, putting a spear in Abishai's hand, huh? So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head, and they got away, and no man saw it or knew it or awoke. For they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. So here's my, um, my case. It's the cop in me. I'm going to build a case here, a little, do a little investigation. 
that David is the anointed at this point. Saul has lost that privilege. Number one, in, in 1 Samuel 13, we covered all these. The prophet Samuel says to King Saul, your kingdom won't continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. 1 Samuel 15, prophet Samuel says to King Saul two times, the Lord has rejected you from being king. And one time, the Lord has taken the kingdom from you today. Furthermore, Samuel says, when no longer to see Saul, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted making Saul king. Last one, 1 Samuel 16. Uh, David is anointed on the Lord's instruction. The oil is poured on him by the prophet Samuel. In the same chapter, the spirit of the Lord comes upon David, and the spirit of the Lord departs from King Saul. And that's never a place that I want to be in. I mean, the same thing happened to, to Samson. Oh, the Philistines are upon you. I ate my Wheaties, I'm ready to go, and he just starts getting pummeled by the Philistines. And they take his eyes out, and they make a slave out of him, a mule. And um, that must have been a very sinking feeling when the Spirit of the Lord left him. That's never a place that we want to be. However, David has respect for the position, and he's going to make sure. He's like, listen, I'm not going to do it. I have these opportunities, but I'm just not going to do it. In a sense, he's um, forcing God's hand. And, and that's a fun thing to, to play with. Can you force God's hand to make a decision? How about if on the other extreme, David actually went into the palace and said to the king, listen, I'm here to take the throne. And the king came after him with a sword. Would that sword just disintegrate? Don't know. So uh, he's kind of going on the other extreme saying, I don't care what happens. I am not taking this man's life. So David maybe saw what happened to Nabal. And you know, God struck him down. Maybe he'll do the same thing with Saul. Now Abishai, on the other hand, sees it a different way. He says, listen, this is the second time, uh, arguably, that the Lord has given you a chance to kill this man. So you, you see a difference of opinion there. However, God puts the camp into a deep sleep. Why? I believe because he honored David's motives. David's motives. His motives were genuine. Now, were David's motives always genuine? Are our motives, are my motives always genuine? Absolutely not. But in this instant, David's motives were genuine, and God honors that. I believe that he puts that deep sleep on the camp because of David's heart in this situation. So a few points to be made. Number one, I truly believe that when we do things with pure motives, the truth eventually comes out. Maybe you're in a situation with your job. Maybe you're in a situation with ministry. Maybe you're in any situation with your family. And they're questioning you. And they're, they're giving you a hard time. But I believe if our motives are pure, we'll be successful. And that doesn't always mean in the worldly, wealthy type of sense, but God's successful. He'll make sure that the truth does come out. Two, I've been on both sides of the, what I call the act-don't-act act equation. There's times that we have to deal decisively. As a police officer... I'm called to a scene, and there's chaos, and they expect me to act. They don't expect me to wait around and, you know, kind of tap my chin and say, hmm, I wonder if I do it this way while there's mayhem. Act. But as a pastor, or you as a Christian, um, we may have to say, Lord, is this the right time to act? There's a time to act decisively, and then there's a time to give it to the Lord. There's been times that... Uh, a situation arises in ministry where I look at that and go, wow, I really don't want to touch that. And like David, I'm like, you know what, Lord, I, no matter what I do with that situation, it's going to be bloody and messy. 
I need you to take care of that. So that's the, that's the challenge as a believer. Act, don't act. Sometimes the Lord wants us to act. Sometimes the Lord wants us to wait. And, and that's definitely a challenge in leadership. When we look at Judas, and, and I see this coming up because Judas was someone who betrayed the Lord. King Saul was someone who directly fought against the Lord's anointed. Okay? Um, Judas betrayed Jesus, and with the religious leaders, they really wanted to get Jesus out of the picture. In this instance, we have a King Saul who um, is really fighting against the Lord's work. Now, the Lord is long-suffering, but eventually he does deal with King Saul. And wherever King Saul is now, and if he's not in a good place, he has no one to blame but himself. Because God gave him chance upon chance upon chance, and he squandered every one of them. I personally wouldn't want to be the person fighting against the Lord's anointed or the work that the Lord is doing. 13. Then David went over to the other side and stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great distance being between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Do you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who are you calling out to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy your lord the king. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you are worthy to die because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. So David makes sure there's enough distance, um, another hill, another valley, uh, enough you know, where if they decided to come after him, he could get away and be safe. So he's at a safe distance. He calls out specifically to Abner who should have been protecting the king as the commander of the army. If any of you have served in the military, you know that, especially if you're in, in a hostile place, uh, somebody's got to be up at night while all the soldiers are sleeping. <laughs> That's just one of the most important things you can do, whether it's Vietnam or Afghanistan or any of these hot zones, somebody has to be up, and usually it's more than one person. So David is saying, you know, you didn't do your job. He holds up the jug, he holds up the spear, uh, but again, he's showing mercy because they could have killed the king, and Abishai wanted to do that. As secure as King Saul thought he was, he was not. Why? Because he was out of God's will. And when we're out of God's will, we put ourselves in grave danger. Now, by contrast, when we're in God's will, who can fight against us? I love Psalm 23, uh, the one portion where he says, you have prepared a table for me in the midst of my enemies. Now, as Italians, we like to eat, okay? We enjoy eating. And I believe, I haven't, I got to look up the word, but I think we even invented the word agita, okay? So, you know, when you sit down for a meal, you don't want to be stressed out. I mean, physiologically, if you're stressed out and you have anxiety and you're, you're, you're keyed up, it'll cause gas, <laughs> it'll cause burping, it'll cause incomplete digestion of food, and all kinds of other problems that go with it. And agita, acid reflex, the whole thing. But what he's saying here is, apparently a lot of you like to eat as much as I do, uh, but what he's saying here is, you have prepared a table for me in the midst of my enemies. So when we are in God's will, it's a picture of sitting down to a banquet. And you've got people all around you who's got the mace, 
who's got the club, who's got the sword, who's got the arrow and the spear. And they're all around you, and you can just sit and relax and enjoy that meal. That is complete trust in the Lord. So you, you're out of God's will. You could try to protect yourself, get an alarm system, get an you know, electrified fence, a helicopter on the roof, and, and you're still going to be living in paranoia. You're going to be up at night, suspicious of everyone. When you're in God's will, you can have all your enemies surrounding you, and you can be protected. So, so it's pretty neat. King Kong could be outside the table, and it doesn't matter. You're in good shape. Verse 17. I personally wouldn't want to live the way Saul lived. You can see the fear and the paranoia and the suspicion that he has over everyone. You know, the one point we read, he had his back. When he ate, his back was against the wall. You know, he, he never knew who was going to turn on him. Verse 17. Then Saul knew David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, what does my lord thus, Why does my lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done, or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore, do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. I don't like King Saul. (laughs) The reason why I don't like him is because I don't like phonies, and he's a phony. I mean, he could have just said, imagine if for one day everyone had to tell the truth, right? Some of us wouldn't leave our house, you know? How do, you, how do I look today? You know what I'm saying? Um, with King Saul here, he, the truth is, David, I hate you. You're a threat to my future. I know that eventually God's going to give you the position that I really don't want to let go of. That's the truth. But of course, he's not speaking the truth. David's complaints, number one, if I've sinned in any way, let me know. If I've sinned, I'm open to that. I'll sacrifice to the Lord. Let me make it right. That's what he's speaking about there. I want to end this. Number two, if, if it's not my sin, then there's agitators, there's troublemakers, there's people looking to stir you up against me. And if you know, if there's somebody who is paranoid and there's someone who's unstable, Boy, it, there's, just, there's always those around them that just love to stir them up and drive them into a frenzy. It's almost like entertainment. So there's, you know, there's agitators, um, probably no doubt, amongst uh, King Saul's uh, posse there. Number three, you guys are driving me out of Israel, away from the, the priesthood, away from the sanctuary, away, away from uh, the sacrifices. In essence, you're trying to push me out of Israel, and what am I going to do? You're trying to push me to serve other gods. It's not a good thing. And four, you know, you're hunting me. I'm a flea. You're, you're hunting a partridge in the mountains. I'm not, I'm not a threat to you guys. But David did represent God. And when you do represent God, there will be others, don't be surprised, that want to give you a hard time. You know, if you're part of a crew or a, a, a cadre of carnal believers, and you decide, and there's a message that inspires you, and you say, you know what, I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want to be in the gossip circle. I don't want to be talking about everybody. I don't want to be where we all get together and be fleshy when we're at a church. When you decide to say, I'm not doing this anymore, watch how the rest of them turn on you. All of us may have experienced that if we've lived long enough. 
So it'll be not, not always the world, but in this case, another believer, an Israelite, the king of Israel. He, he uses the, 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 um, you know, the, the believer's lingo, and he's coming after David. 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. Very good with his words. And David answered and said, Here is the king's spirit. Let one of the young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. 21 through 25. Um, another truth, well, David may be forgiving, but he's not dumb. <laughs> Have somebody come and get the spear. I'm certainly not going over to you to give you the spear back. He doesn't believe him. And as believers at times, we, we can forgive and we can forget. But trust is like a house that needs to be built again. In, in a split second, that wrecking ball is, is betrayal, is, uh, you know, whatever the case may be, it just knocks the whole house down. And it takes a long time to clean up the rubble, put those bricks back together of trust. So you may be agonizing. You may have someone in mind that you have forgiven, but you're just not ready to give them the privileges again of that close relationship. Don't sweat it. I see some of you shaking your heads. It, you're not doing anything wrong. Even Jesus said, if your brother repents, forgive him seven times 70, because if there's no repentance, then you, what you're doing is you're just feeding more bad behavior. So David, no doubt in my mind, has forgiven the king, but he also is not giving him the privilege of having close fellowship. That's got to be earned, because right? Saul has proven himself to be unfaithful time and time again. So King Saul is a great example of a carnal believer, driven by emotion and the heat of the moment. But conviction is worthless unless actions follow it. And in King Saul's case, he always had the right words. He always had a smooth tongue, but he never followed it up with action. Oh, I'm so convicted. Then you wonder, is he really convicted or is he playing me again? You see? It's sad that even in the church, some grow up in a Bible-believing church, and read the scripture, and he can even regurgitate concepts and memorize scripture, but it never takes root in their heart. And then when their idols are challenged, they abandon. Listen, it's one thing to leave a church, but what's worse is when, when God's word is abandoned. So what? You go to a different church, it's not a big deal. But that the God's word and, and the concepts and all those things you memorize are pushed aside to live this, this life of, of, you know, phoniness, so to speak. Now, we're going to cover the, well, two more points I want to make, and then we're going to hit the next chapter. It's short, because it really hinges. The next verse hinges both of these chapters together. So verse 22, David again says, here's the spear. And the spear was a symbol of the king's authority. So David got a little bit more bold, and he, he really made a statement by taking that spear. He could have just taken the water jug. They were both close to the king. But taking the spear was making a statement. You know, this is going to be taken from you. Uh, David had the moral high ground. Now, let's go back to the story of Nabal. Imagine if David would have wiped out Nabal and all those men, and it got back to the king. 
the king might have thought he had the moral high ground. Thanks to Abigail, David didn't do it. (laughs) So that was great. Up until this point, David is struggling and he's in the will of God, but now things are going to change in this one verse. Verse Chapter 27, verse 1. And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me anymore in any part of Israel, so I shall escape out of his hand. Now, remember, the Bible records history. The Bible records what men of God say, but what they say is not always right, and this is one of those cases. What happened to all the promises King Saul just said in the last few verses, you're going to be destined for great things. God is, Saul is reiterating to David the promises that God gave David. And in the next verse, he's saying, he's going to kill me, this guy. I've got to get out of here. And I've got to go see the Philistines. Do we kid ourselves sometimes as believers? Do we have these ideas in our mind and then our friends who know the Bible say, no, you really shouldn't do that. It's against scripture. The Lord told me, be careful with some of those. I'm going to go hang out with the Philistines. Not a good idea. Sadly, fear takes place where faith once was. And it's a temporary point in David's life. And maybe we've been through that too. Where we have faith and we're doing good. And then all of a sudden, fear starts to take hold. It's like that vine, that weed that grows very slowly within within the beautiful garden. And I've seen them in our gardens. My wife is very faithful to root them out because what they do is they slowly take up the soil, they they take up the nutrients, the water, they start wrapping themselves around the other vegetation. It's a very slow process. And then before you know it, it's completely strangulated. Got to get those out of there. That's what fear does. A few points. Number one is that if we think, as we read this, you're going to look at David and go, wow, maybe I haven't seen that before. If we think about ourselves, I'm no good, I'm useless, I have a lot of baggage. When we read about the men and women of the Bible, so did they. (laughs) I mean, what I love about Moses and David and Gideon and and, um, the disciples is that they weren't perfect. So I get to look at that and I read that and it makes me feel better because I have flaws too. I'm not perfect and the Lord can still use me. And the Lord can use you too. But Pastor Joe, you don't know I have this baggage. It doesn't matter doesn't matter. You live long enough, you carry baggage with you. Leave it at the foot of the cross. Let the, let, Lord, let the Lord deal with you. Number two, fear will always cause us to make wrong decisions and sometimes hang out with the wrong crowd. I mean, what kind of worse crowd do you get than the Philistines? I mean, David, he found the worst crowd to hang out with. He goes over there. And third, sadly, when fear takes over, the promises of God are set aside as if we forgot them, as if there was some mind eraser, because we don't live as if we believe those promises anymore. Oh, yes, those promises are for all the other Christians, but not me. God has forsaken me. He's done with me. He hates me. Not true. Not true. Verse 2. Then David arose and went over with the 600 men, and these guys followed him over there, who were with him to Ashish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. So David dwelt with Ashish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. Remember who who was from Gath? 
I'll do a, a pastor mic. Go ahead. Shout out. Who was from Gath? Goliath. Wow. That was awesome. <laughs> Goliath and his other brothers, right? And David's hanging out in Gath. He was looking to get Saul off his back, and guess what? It worked. No more problems, or so he thought. Again, number one, showing support for the enemy. Bad decision. Bad decision. You know, when Israel was struggling with their battles, they often would call up Egypt. I mean, they didn't have phones back then. But they'd get a hold of Egypt. They'd get a hold of Syria. Hey, you got any mercenaries you can send over here? A few hundred guys, real warriors, really bad dudes. Because we're fighting somebody else and we need your help. And God would say, stop calling the mercenaries. Call on me. I'll fix it. I'll solve your problems. Right? But they did it. Number two, we need to be careful not to say in our heart, I will do anything to make this problem go away because somebody's listening. It's Satan. And he'll say, really? Because I can fix that for you. And that, that God that you serve, how long have you been dealing with that affliction? Pfft, he doesn't care about you. I, in one day, I can wipe that out. Just, just start worshiping me. Just come over to my side. I'm not that scary. I'll fix that problem for you. Trust me. And he will. The devil will find a way if you, if you give your loyalty to him. I will say this. It's better to have a problem and be in God's will than not to have any problems and be out of God's will. Keep that in mind. Verse 5. Then David said to Ashish, If I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So Ashish gave him Ziklag to that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. It's going to be awkward when David now, as the king, at some point later, fast forward, has to fight the Philistines. It's going to be awkward. It's going to be probably a little hypocritical. David now calls himself a servant of Ashish. Now, you see, David gets to a point where, and this is, this is a low spot in his life, and let me just say that I hope I'm not sounding too critical, because if I was in his position, I may, might, might make some bad decisions too. I think that all of us as believers, if we've lived long enough, we've been in positions where we just think it's just too ominous. It's just too formidable. And, and we, we're tended, we tend to be tempted to make a decision because God's not doing it fast enough. Keep that in mind. And I've been there. So I'm trying not to be too critical. If anybody really had a hard time, it was definitely David. But he spent 16 months with the Philistines. And some could read this and say, wow, but Ziklag was to the kings of Judah to this day. See, what we do is we take a bad idea and we try to find what we think are good aspects out of it. You know, I'll just chew the poisonous meat and try to spit out the poison if I could find it. That's really bad. It's bad for your diet. Um, and it's also bad to live that way as a believer. So we can look at some of this and we can say, wow, his, you know, his problems seem to, you know, Saul left him alone. But it was a bad plan. David is very resourceful. He's quick on his feet. He's clever. But now what happens is his resourcefulness takes center stage over trusting in God. He, he was deceiving Ashish at times. We don't know if when he called him his servant that he really meant it. He, he did have an ulterior motive, and we'll get into that. But David becomes so resourceful, so quick on his feet. He had a quick wit. 
Before, when he was in Philistine territory, remember, he, he pretended he was mad in a split second and started spittling all over his beard and scratching at the walls. And they said, get this guy out of here. Well, I need a madman in my city. So David was very, he had a lot of really neat gifts, but they really took center stage over trusting God at this point. Verse 8. And David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, and the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Ashish. And Ashish would say, where have you made a raid today? And David would say, against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of the Jeramielites, or against the southern area of the Kenites. David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did. And so was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Ashish believed David, saying, he has made his people Israel utterly abhor him, therefore he will be my servant forever. This is a very dark time in David's life, pretending to be fighting the residents of Judah or on the outskirts of Judah, but really fighting the fringe pagan-dwelling groups. Now, to make it worse, David doesn't leave anyone alive, no witnesses, no witnesses that can run back and say, David, you know, it's not what you think. Now, some would say, well, they were just pagans or Israel's enemy, and, and some actually think that this is right. I disagree. It's not a hill to die on, but I just don't agree. I don't agree. Um, there was a national mandate when the Jews came into the promised land. There was a, a certain time and a certain mandate in a national level. Um, some say, well, David was just doing the Lord's work. I, I just don't agree with that. But I will say this. When David was on the run, let's go back to that. He was being persecuted. Life was tough. But David was in God's will. In verse 1 is the real turning point to David's walk. And again, he does get restored, which is a good thing as we continue reading this. God is merciful. He gives us so many chances. Um, he finally gets King Saul off his back. He has authority now in this situation. He has freedom. He has successful raids, and his problems seem to be over. And that's probably why he stayed there so long, a year and four months. But I don't believe he was in God's will. He was hanging with the wrong crowd. He was lying. He was manipulating. He was manufacturing his own successes. Warren Wearsby has a quote, and he says, faith is living without scheming. And again, David's scheming, he was relying all on himself at this point. Let's just talk about what this means to us and our society. Our society wants to cut corners at every turn, wants to get rid of any tribulation in life. In our society, we're taught to take the easy way out, the easy job, right? I'm watching some interviews, and people don't want to work anymore. You know, there's some in the young generation, they want to get six figures right out of college. That's not realistic. It's not realistic. When I graduated from college, I was, it was a mild recession at the time, and I was working off some awful jobs, because that's all that there was out there. But we're taught to take the easy way out. And this evening, some of you may be struggling you may be struggling to free yourself from a burden that you've been carrying for a while. And the temptation is to do it your way. And, and, and let me just say this, and I think I, maybe I should be more transparent from the pulpit 
all the mistakes that people make here, I made too, you know, and I still make them. You know, the temptation is to, oh, God's just taking too long. I need to help him out a little bit. Maybe he forgot about me. Maybe he's taken a nap for 10 years and, and he's completely not thinking about me. So I need to tweak that plan a little bit, right? Don't do it. It'll cost you every time. In the pastor's conference uh, these last few days, there was some similar sentiments echoed by the pastors. And the truth is that when we stand up, see, this is Satan's kingdom. It, you know, it was delivered to him a long time ago. Our federal head parents gave it up when they sinned. Satan does have control over this world. Now, we know God is working, and Satan can't thwart God. But remember, he even offered Jesus all these kingdoms and all these temptations. And Jesus didn't say, well, you don't have that authority to do that. He just said, no, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it the Father's way. So there is some truth into this is Satan's playground. And when you stand up and you say, I want to make a difference. I want to bring people to the cross. I want to see marriages get better. I want to help people. Well, Satan says, oh, I see you. You just, you just got onto my radar screen. I'll fix your wagon. I'll use your family against you. I'll use your church friends against you. I'll use everybody. I'll throw anything I can at you. Your kids, your parents, your spouse. It's game on. Don't threaten my kingdom. He doesn't take it lightly. There was a pastor, Sandy Adams, and what an incredible message. I couldn't even start going through it, but he referenced a poem. And in the poem, it says, you have no scar. You who follow Jesus, you have no wound. You who follow Jesus, how close can you really be following your Savior if you don't have any marks to prove it? In essence, that Jesus said, you know, you want to do what I do. You know, the world hates me. So when you emulate me, the world's going to hate you too, and they're going to come after you for it. Those of us who really desire to serve the Lord will have the scars to prove it and the wounds because we emulate our Savior. There's movements today that tell you everything's going to be fine. You can be wealthy. You'll never get sick. Everyone's going to love you. You'll be successful. It's not realistic if you're following the Lord because the Bible promises that those who want to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So, you want the devil and the world to leave you alone? Then compromise. Many do it. One of the things that was also said in the pastor's conference was men don't compromise. And, and it was a great message from, see, I get this guy, man, it was just, I listened to it. Pastor Vinny and I were listening to it on the way up because we didn't get the first day. And he said to these pastors, he goes, when you start taking the hits, you're tempted to compromise. Like David did, just to get this stuff off your back. Don't do it. The Lord is there. And, and he's working this, he's working a process in you. He's growing you. He's stretching you. You need this. All right? I'll say it again. It's, rather, it's better to have nagging problems and persecution and be in the will of God. It is really odd. The closer we get to God and the more we want to serve him, he allows worse things to happen to us. It's a very weird uh, system, but, but he has a plan. Then be free of all of my problems and be outside of the will of God. I know where I would rather be, and I say that, and I cringe when I say that but it's a choice that we all have to make. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we, um, we read your word and, and we see, and, and I can imagine if anyone had the, 
the, the, the bragging rights to, to complain, it would have been David. To be living out in the wilderness, to, to be pushed from one city to the other, to, to be dirty and not have the amenities of home. To just